Please turn with me to Mark chapter 9, as we are going to look at the last bit of this chapter, verses 42 through 49, Mark chapter 9. Before we do so, let's go again to the Lord in prayer and ask that he would help us. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we come to a difficult bit of text that has some very strong language concerning sin, concerning how we should act concerning our sin. And so help us to take heed to not just kind of gloss over these words as we've done so many times, or at least as I've done so many times. Help us to take them to heart, understand what it is you are teaching us, understand the duty that you require of us. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen. So I read through the text this week and studied it. <clears throat> made me think about a substance that was partly responsible for the founding of civilization. It's uh, the most powerful cities in the world were actually built around this substance and wars were fought over it. The longest ancient roads were named after it. And historically, it was considered a prize, but now it's just very common. And this is actually one of the main reasons that Lewis and Clark, if you're interested in that kind of history, this is one of the main reasons they started their expedition, because they were told that there was an entire mountain made of the stuff. And the substance I'm speaking of is salt. Because of salt, the people of the world could start preserving food, which meant they could spend time doing other things besides, you know, just constantly worrying about what they're going to eat, which meant things like art and music and culture in general started to arise, which have been very good for civilization. I spent some time reading about the history of salt. And, if, you know, that's one of the things that nerdy people do, read about the history of odd things. And I was fascinated by something, how something seemingly so simple as salt, something that we can just go to the store and buy all that we want, could have such an influence as, as it has. Today's salt is cheap, it's plentiful, it's mostly used for seasoning. We don't really use it as a preservative as much unless it's kind of a novelty type thing. But we aren't too far removed from a time when it was one of the most important things on earth, literally 100 years ago, 150 years ago. And in some cultures, still very important. So in our text today, Jesus commands us to have salt in ourselves and explains to us that everyone will be salted with fire. He talks about how it would be bad if salt would somehow lose its saltiness and wonders how it could ever be made salty again. Jesus knows all about salt, of course. He made it. But what he's talking about here is something far more important than salt. And that is the subject of sin. As we dig into our passage today, we're going to come face to face with some of the most known verses in the Bible concerning sin. And unfortunately, they are many times quoted by unbelievers to believers. Well, this is what the Bible says about sin. Why? Because they seem really harsh. A lot of times unbelievers really like the harsh things in the Bible to try to trip us up with them. 
They're the kind of verse that they throw at us, the kind of verses that a lot of Christians, frankly, just wish would go away, that we wouldn't have to deal with. But they won't go away. They're always here. God's Word's eternal. And so that's, it's our work to read and understand them and be faithful to them. And what this passage has to teach us not only will change our lives, of course, but it will also change how the unbelieving world looks at us if we take these verses to heart. And so as we look at this passage, I want to divide it into three points. First, the battle. Second, the sacrifice. And then lastly, the victory. So with, with that, let's look together at Mark chapter 9, starting at verse 42 and going through the end of the chapter. This is God's word. Whoever causes, oh, please stand in the honor of the reading of God's word. I'm a distracted man this morning. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than to then with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So real quick, just a little context. Remember last week, Jesus was in the home of a friend, and he was teaching the disciples about humility and service, and he used one of the children of the home to kind of illustrate his point. It was probably an infant child. And when we open our text today, we immediately have Jesus talking about a child again. He ever calls us one of these little ones, and he's probably holding this little baby still when he's talking about this. Same scene, same house, same kid. And he was using the child to talk about the lowest in society, which, which children, especially at the time, were considered low on the totem pole. Jesus shifts a bit here in this passage in verse 42, specifically speaking about the little ones who believe in me. And so what's he talking about? Sure, this could be about children, children believers, and how this could be a direct application to them, sure. But taken more broadly, that's really any believer, particularly the believers who are vulnerable, who may be struggling in their faith, who are considered on the outside of things. That's all of us sometimes, but for some it's a constant kind of thing. Jesus uses this teaching concerning these believers as a springboard to talk about sin in general, which is important, and that's how and how we should be handling our own sin. And so with that, let's look at the first point, the battle. Look with me again at verses 42 and 43. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him for a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And then he goes on, if your hand causes you to sin, and so forth. So again, the focus here could be on this infant that Jesus is holding, but I think Jesus is really speaking to any believer who, like that infant, may be vulnerable, may be considered insignificant to others, 
This is the protection of Christ, looking out for those believers who need some extra help, because we know what the exact opposite of this looks like, right? The arrogant Christian who thinks that they have it all together. Admittedly, that's me sometimes. It's very easy to gloss over anyone that we deem insignificant. We kind of make these rules for ourselves and we decide who's insignificant. And thus, it might be easy for us to use someone like this to our advantage, to cause them to sin even. I think Jesus is clear here. It's not a good thing to cause another believer to sin. He uses this graphic illustration of having a millstone tied around your neck. It would be better for him to go ahead and drown this horrible death than to lead someone into sin. Why would Jesus say this? Why is he making such a big deal about sin? I think the next verses really help us there because it shows Jesus' view on sin. We probably spend a whole lot more time talking about what it means to lead someone into sin, but I think the thrust of this text is the following words. If you need to talk about that after the sermon, of course, we can do that. If you have questions about what that verse 42 means, but I want to spend more time on the following verses. He goes on to talk about how we should deal with sin. So look at some of the language there. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter hell or enter life crippled than with two hands and go to hell. And he says the same same thing about your foot. It's better for you to cut one of them off than to have two and be thrown into hell. Same thing with your eyes. Tear one of them out. Enter the kingdom of God rather than to have both and be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Pretty graphic stuff. People who claim that Jesus didn't talk much about hell probably didn't read much Jesus. He talks a lot about hell quite a bit, and when he does so, he does so in such a way to make us understand that it's not a pleasant place at all. Think of the language that he's used in other places in Scripture, where he talks about weeping and gnashing of teeth. And here he talks about unquenchable fire, a place where the worm never dies. This isn't really a phrase that we would use much today. Think, what does that mean, the worm never dies? Well, it basically points to the facts that when worms would come, what do the worms do to a corpse? Well, they eat it as the corpse decomposes, and eventually there's just no corpse left, and so the worms leave, right? Or they die. Well, in hell, the corpse never goes away. There's constant torment. There's constant suffering. It's a forever thing. So what is Jesus saying here? He's saying that we should self-mutilate rather than sin. Obviously not. What Jesus is trying to convey here is the seriousness of sin. It's so serious that it would be better for us to do those things. Cut our hands and feet off, tear our eyes out, attach a millstone around our neck, rather than live a life of sin and end up in hell. And notice, who's the audience here? He didn't go out into the countryside and find anybody who would come listen to talk to them about how horrible they were and then save you know, the good lovey-dovey stuff for his disciples. No, he's talking to his disciples while he's got an infant in his arms saying these things. So what does this sin have to do with the believer? Aren't we saved from sin? And so I have to do this from time to time and it needs to be done from time to time a lot. When we're talking about things like how Christians should live holy lives, we had this in our catechism today, what duty does God require of man? 
Christians should be working to be without sin and should be active in their own sanctifications. So does that mean that we're talking now then that we're earning our salvation? Of course not. It's not what we're talking about. When Jesus is talking about hell here, he's not suggesting that a believer can somehow lose their salvation if they're not careful, somehow end up in hell even if they thought they've always been saved. Salvation is something that he purchased through his death. It wasn't something that he just kind of done just on a side note. He purchased it with his life and death. He did it a once and for all thing. It's not a thing that has to be done over and over again, thankfully. When we talk about the responsibility of a believer to work on getting rid of sin, we aren't talking about their need to do that so that they might be saved. In fact, the pendulum here swings very wide in two ways. And I mentioned this earlier in my prayer. On one hand, you have some who are so afraid of losing their salvation, they act as if their fear and even their piety is what keeps them saved. Well, that's called legalism, not the gospel. On the other hand, there are those who kind of write the date in their Bible, so to speak, that one time they were at VBS or church camp or whatever, they write that date in their Bible, then they live however they want to, indulging in all sorts of wickedness, and they might even get baptized a few times for good measure just to renew their salvation whenever it feels right. Well, that's called antinomianism or lawlessness. That's not the gospel either. So in the middle, there's a place where Jesus died for the sin of each believer and the righteousness of Christ was assigned to the believer, making him right with God forever. We've been talking about this in Romans as well. All the while, the believer is called to be aggressively stamping out sin in their life as fast and as furious as they can. That's the life that Jesus is talking about here in this passage. Jesus is so serious about sin that he says a believer would be better to go through life blind and crippled rather than to go through life saying that all they had to do was say a little prayer, write it in their Bible, and then go about their merrymaking. Judas was listening there. He was there. Remember Judas? He may have been nodding his head in agreement the whole time. But when push came to shove, he loved money more than he loved Jesus. So what then should we do in regard to Christ's words here? Well, we battle against our sin. We fight. We put it to death. In Romans chapter 8, verse 13, it says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. That's what Jesus is saying here. But if you live by the Spirit, you will put to death the deeds of the body, and you will live. The word put to death here is replacing a big word that's found in older translations that I really like, and it's called mortify. If you mortify the deeds of the flesh, if you put them to death, English Puritan John Owen actually wrote a book about this called The Mortification of Sin. It's 144 pages, and you may think, oh, that's not bad. I'll pick that up. But that's like saying a brick wall is only three and a half inches thick. That's not bad. I'll walk right through it. Good luck. Mortification of Sin, fantastic book for those who are able to trudge through it. It's very dense, but very rewarding. So I encourage you to pick that up. 
but again, you've been warned. John Owen was a very smart guy. But in it, he famously says something that we can all understand. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. The whole thesis of the book is the idea that putting sin to death is an active thing that a believer is doing. Believers do this by their very nature. And we do so by taking away the source of sin. Anything in our lives that's propping it up, making it easy, taking those things away. This is what Jesus is saying here. It's better for you to take those things away that cause you to sin. And yet all the while, Owen reminds us of what Paul says in Romans eight thirteen. How do we do this? How can a believer possibly do this when I struggle with sin so much as it is? How does Paul call us to live? Not by our flesh, but by the Spirit. We battle, we fight with sin, but this isn't one that we do alone. In fact, we can't. If we fight sin alone, we die in the battle. We become a casualty. You probably know casualties. You've probably been one at some point in your life, too. When we work with the Spirit, when we beg the Spirit's help, we can be victorious. It's one of the major ways the Spirit works in this way is through the help of brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, we can't do this alone. That's why we're here together today. Probably could have preached several sermons on this one idea, but we need to move on. The next idea, I think, helps us understand this a little more clearly, and that's the sacrifice. This is looking mostly at verse 49. So in Leviticus, the priests, and in several places in the Old Testament, you see the same idea. The priests were instructed to season their sacrifice with salt. So like before the grain offering, you see this in Leviticus chapter 2, I think. Before the grain offering, what happens is the priests are told to take salt and season the grain. The actual grain. Season it with salt. There's lots of thoughts as to why the salt is used, but one of them, the best idea that I thought was interesting, is after the grain is burnt up, guess what's left? The salt. You cannot destroy salt with fire. God calls that salt, the salt that's being sprinkled on the grain, the salt of the covenant, with the idea being that the covenant with God, that that God has with man, is an everlasting covenant. And in Christ... The, the one who the sacrifices point to, the fact that that grain offering points to the time when Christ would come, the fulfillment of that covenant. And so how does this help us with Mark chapter 9, verse 49? For everyone will be salted with fire. Sounds pretty harsh. I wish it helped more than it does, but it really doesn't help a whole lot. This is a hard verse. I agree with the commentators, though, that this salt and fire here have to do with our purification considering the context sin in our lives and us having to deal directly with that sin and the following verse verse 50 i see purification as the idea of what's going on here particularly as you read the other writings of the apostles so what does this mean that every believer is going to go through trials in which this is the idea that we are going to be salted with fire that we we have to we will have to actively put sin to death that we will be tested in our faith not only that it's those trials that the believer's ability to deal with sin is actually refined and made better through practice we get better that makes sense ask any believer who's older 60s 70s 80s 
believers who've seen lots of things, who've been through lots of hard times, they will confirm this idea to you. That it's these trials by fire that make us better and harder. The times are hard, but those hard times make us who we are in the end. And as Christians, I think it's those difficult times that refine us. Being salted with fire means that while the fire is hot, we will be changed. Those bad things will be burned off, so to speak. This has a lot to do with what we talked about last week, sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Peter, in 1 Peter 4, he says this, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though it were something strange. What is Peter saying to the believers? Expect this sort of thing to happen. So am I saying that God tests us? Yes, absolutely he tests us. In fact, these times of testings are the one way that I know for myself that I know that I'm his. That he is coming to me and that he is actively dealing with me. When I'm out in the public and I see kids acting bad, I don't go up to those kids and correct them. Why? Because they're not mine. I save that treatment for my own children. That's a special relationship that I have with my children. Not because I enjoy correcting them, but because I want to see them become faithful adults one day. It's this relationship, this being salted with fire, that helps us know that he's working on us, that he's not finished with us yet. Through these fiery trials, these are for our good. We become better because of it. The writer of Hebrews says, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And so this is what I see this as a believer is being salted with fire is the Father's love for us and care for us. He doesn't this isn't for the unbeliever. They're not salted with fire like the believer is. That brings me to the last point, the victory. The last verse here that Jesus gives us brings this full circle. Verse 50 He says, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. If you think about this from a Palestinian perspective, first century Palestine in particular, a place where food would spoil very quickly because it's a hot place. Salt was the lifeline of this whole society. They, they, had, they couldn't eat unless they killed it that day or unless they had salt. And in the same way, this is good for a believer. Salt is good. That's what Jesus tells us. Unless salt is salty, unless it's doing the work of preserving and seasoning, it's a useless kind of mineral. It doesn't really have any purpose for us. So if it's so good... What should we do with it? What should, if it's so good, then should I just go on and start putting it on everything? This, this, uh, you know, this salting ourselves with fire. If it's so good for the believer, then isn't it good for the unbeliever also? Shouldn't I just take the salt that I'm being salted with and just salt it on everything? If it's so good to mortify the sins of the flesh, shouldn't I go and then and demand that of unbelievers then, right? That they should be mortifying their sin as well. 
If Jesus is using the fiery trials to bring me closer to him, then I can bring the unbeliever closer to him by preaching the fiery trials at him. Isn't that right? Should I go about salting everyone with fire? I've known Christians who do this. They're never very popular. Not that being popular is a goal. I've been that person before for sure. I've lost friends because of it. I've hurt people because of it. So how should I handle this salt then? Well, Jesus tells us we don't have to even worry about it. Have salt in yourselves. Be at peace with one another. Have salt in yourself. When it comes to purification, when it comes to preservation, I should concern myself with my own sin. What does that mean that we stop preaching repentance? Does that mean we stop talking about sin altogether? No, absolutely not. I can stand up here and say that without Jesus, you will die. You will go to hell where there's unquenchable fire, where the worm never dies. If you do not repent and believe, that is what's happening to you. Absolutely. I can also call out the sins of the world. Towing the same lines the Bible does. I don't disagree with the Bible at all when it comes to sin. It's those sins that separate us from the Father. Without Jesus, we will remain that way for all eternity. Yet... When it comes to my unbelieving friend's sin and his own moral purification, I'm to have salt in myself and I'm to be at peace with him. I can call him to repentance. I can say to him, repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ and I can still be at peace with him. I am to put to death my own sin and I am to love my friend. And that's what we're being called to do here. And you've heard me say it before. Love the sinner. Hate your own sin. That's exactly what Jesus is saying here. When it comes to our relationship with believers and or with other believers in their sin, I think the church has a structure for dealing with this, with issues in the church. The structure starts with a one-on-one conversation. We're not talking about, well, then if there's sin in the church, should we just ignore it and smile at one another? Absolutely not. We deal with that sin. Jesus gives us structure for that in Matthew 18 and other places in Scripture. But we're not salting one another with fire in that regard. When it comes to the sins of the unbelieving world, I'm to preach the gospel, calling them to repentance. Does moral purification bring them closer to God? Absolutely not. Who can bring them closer to God alone? Jesus Christ. And so that is the name that I will preach. Calling them to holy living is like putting lipstick on a pig. They don't understand, and it's probably just going to make them mad. And so in conclusion, have salt in yourself. Hate your own sin. Put it to death. Are you doing that? Call out to the Spirit. Ask Him. Say, show me my sin, Spirit of God. Ask Him to work with you in putting those sins to death. Spirit, help me to put my sins to death, to mortify my sins. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. And be at peace with one another. Let us love one another, calling sin what it is, but also walking together in love. 
Let us call an unbelieving world to repentance and belief in Jesus Christ. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to this time of prayer, I think still I may just be glossing over these words that you've said. And so I beg your forgiveness. Help me to see the seriousness of sin, the way in which you regard my sin as one of your children, one of yours that has been from the foundation of the earth, that you've known my name, that you went to the cross. For each one of us here who are yours, help us to know the seriousness of sin that we might know what it means to live holy lives, that we we might know what it means to put to death our sin, to be killing our sin, lest it be killing us. Holy Spirit, we pray your help in this. We want to live by the Spirit of God, not according to the flesh, and so help us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.